Well, a story is told of uh, Benjamin Franklin who loved to argue. And once in a while, he would come across someone who uh, would overwhelm him. And uh, their arguments were better than his. And so he would say, well, let me have a day to, to research this because I know I'm right. And he would go home and search the scriptures to see if he could find a verse that would back up his point of view. But if he couldn't find a verse, he would make one up and just put it in biblical language and then come in the next day and say, well, as, as Hezekiah 7.5 says, and he'd say whatever he wanted it to say, but he won those arguments because people were willing to ascribe to the Bible final authority. No matter what their discussion or argument was about, if he said, the Bible says this, that settled it. And even though uh, uh, Benji was misusing Scripture in doing that, the example for us of how the people so highly uh, elevated the Word of God as the final authority should be a lesson to us. So we're in Acts chapter 17 today, and it presents to us two case studies and response to God's Word. So, so far we have looked at in our short series on the Word of God, we've looked at the wondrous Word of God in Psalm 19, how it is perfect and sub, uh, uh, sufficient for all of our needs. Uh, last week we looked at the inspiration of the Word of God, that God breathed out His Word into men. We have His very Word. Today we're going to look at the authority of God's Word. So what is meant by the authority of God's Word? Well, simply put, God has all authority in heaven and earth. All authority belongs to Him. But the Bible is his word, as we saw last week. It's his very word. So the Bible then has the same authority over our lives as God does. We could even say that the Bible is God's way of disclosing his authority. What the Bible says, it says authoritatively. So imagine you're, you're in third grade. Some of you may be. You're in third grade, and your principal has posted throughout the school this sign with his ten rules. Ten rules, and he signed his name at the bottom. These signs are all over the school. Rule number seven says, no rock throwing. But you like to throw rocks. And after all, you're in third grade. And the principal calls you into his office and says, Gary, how many times do I have to tell you no rock throwing? And I said, I, and, and you say, well, you've never told me that. But look at all the postings I put around. All those ten rules. Who do they come from? Came from you. What does number seven say? No rock throwing. So the point that he was trying to impress upon a young lad was that even if he wasn't there standing beside me saying, don't throw those rocks, Gary, his, his authority was in the, the rules that he gave, had his name to it. It had the same authority as if he was standing right next to me. 
I got the lesson eventually. Well, the same thing is true for the Word of God. This is God's Word to us. And even if He's not standing right next to you, telling you, do this, don't do that, walk in this way, it is just as if He is there. In fact, is God with you? Always, right? He's always with us. He, he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So in truth, He really is there. But I think sometimes we come to this word as if, it's, as, if it's, as if it is detached from God himself when it is his very word. So the word authority in relationship to the word of God means that it has the, the right to tell me how to live my life. It is the final authority in all matters related to faith and life. So imagine that you want to know, what does a godly marriage look like? Well, you could attend seminars, you could read books, you could listen to podcasts, you could ask friends and so forth and get their input, and you might get some good things. But only this book has the authority to really tell you. Everything else someone else might tell you is in subjection to what this book says. This is the final word for us. It is the ultimate authority. So uh, think about the world of advertising. So a company wants to promote its, its product by convincing people they have the best product out there. And, and they do so with presenting some kind of authority so that that will make an impression on you. Maybe they'll have someone come out with a, a white uh, lab coat on and maybe they're a doctor or an engineer or scientist or something. And when you see that coat, you think in the back of your mind, this is somebody who knows what they're talking about. In small print underneath uh, on the commercial, it says, uh, these are actors and not real doctors or whatever. I saw one a couple weeks ago who said... <laughs> Uh, these are actors and not real people. But, but we, we tend to ascribe some level of authority to them. And we're, people are looking for an authoritative word. Someone who will speak truth to them. Something they can depend upon. So we come to this word of God as the authority of God. And the Bible doesn't speak about everything in life. It doesn't tell us about what is the best car insurance to buy or um, how to deal with hair loss. Uh, but it does tell you how to have eternal life insurance. It does tell you that God knows every hair that's on your head. God knows everything about you. The Bible tells us the things which are truly significant, important for our life. It tells us about eternal things. But it also tells us about everyday things. How, how do we grow in Christ? How do we live for him? How do we minister to one another? How do we love others? How do we share the word? All the things that are truly important for our life we find in these words. So we come to Acts 17 and we see two examples of a response to God's authoritative word. The first one is the church of Thessalonica. 
or the town of Thessalonica, which established a church. So it's in verse 1 through 9. We we'll start with 1 through 4, the receiving of, uh, or the reasoning from the scriptures. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, not many, not most, but some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So, as his custom was, verse 2 says, this is how Paul normally operated. He would go into a new city or a town and he would seek out the synagogue because he knew there he would find people who at least were familiar with the Old Testament, who understood who the Messiah was and he wanted to go and proclaimed to them that Messiah had come. And so he started with the synagogue. And as Paul himself says in Romans 1, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. So I always went to the Jews first. As his custom was, he went in to the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. He, he reasoned with them. He had a had discussion, the dialogue with them, but back and forth talking about these things. He reasoned with them about who the Messiah was and who Jesus was and that he had to die, that he had to rise again from the dead. But he reasoned with them not from his own opinion. He, he didn't use uh, the rest of the apostles. He didn't refer to the teaching of the rabbis. He used one thing, one authoritative thing, that was the Word of God. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Not opinion, not experience, not others, from the Scriptures. Because it is the only really authoritative word. He Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. Explaining is a is a word that means uh, to, to open up and examine, kind of like it's used of dissecting something. So if you dissect an animal and you look inside, I remember doing that in 10th grade in biology. They plopped cats in front of us and said, to open them up and ex- find this and that, and I knew I was not going to be a doctor at that moment. But... It's opening something up to examine what's inside. That's the idea of the word here, examining. Uh, explaining, rather. And so he was opening up the scriptures and saying, here's what God put in the scriptures. Here's the, the biblical truths, the promises and prophecies of God about the Messiah. So opening up or explaining and demonstrating, or like the translation, proving, Proving from the scriptures that the Christ. Now, remember that the Christ means the Messiah. A Christos is the Greek word for the Messiah of the Old Testament. So, 
demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. It had to happen because the word said it was going to happen, prophesied, promised it had to happen just as it did. They were expecting a Messiah to come to be their king, to lead them in revolt against Rome, to establish a heavenly, uh, an earthly kingdom right then. But Paul is straightening them out on this, proving from the Scripture that that was not the first coming of the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come, first of all, to die for our sin and to rise from the dead. And so he proved this from the Scriptures, the authoritative Word of God. And he said, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Messiah. So Paul used the, the power of the Word of God to prove his point. And I think he might have used some passages like, like this. Um, I think they're in your, your notes. Isaiah 53, verse 3 through 6. Read, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or consider the words from Psalm 22 about the suffering of the Messiah. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my mouth. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Or Psalm 16. Starting at verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I shall not be moved. For, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. A verse uh, used by Peter on the day of Pentecost in his first message to show that Christ was not left in the grave, that he rose from the dead. And you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Paul was reasoning with them, explaining 
and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. This Jesus who I'm preaching to you is the Christ. And their response in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. Some of them understood that this was God's word, God's promise to them, and Jesus was the fulfillment of it. But not, not all of them reacted in the same way. In fact, most of them did not. So starting at verse 5, but the Jews, that is, those who were not persuaded, those who did not believe, were, became envious. They were jealous that God was doing this work in these Gentiles and some of their own fellow Jews. They became jealous of this and took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. So these are those who were reacting against the Scriptures. They not only did not receive it, were not persuaded by it, but they were attacking it. Uh, this happens when, when uh, those who reject the truth um, usually end up attacking people instead of advancing reasonable arguments. And we see that in this passage. In verse 5, they resorted to physical abuse. In verse 6, to verbal abuse. In verse 7, to twisting the truth. But even in all that, yet they said, maybe unwittingly, some things which are actually true. These have turned the world upside down. And that is true in the sense that as Paul and Silas and others went out in the name of Christ proclaiming the gospel, that the world was being turned upside down as thousands of people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. In that sense, they were. Now, they meant it in a, a bad way. They meant it in a sense that they are causing trouble, which is ironic because they're the ones who gathered together the mob and caused the city to be in an uproar. And also saying that there is another king, Jesus. And in that, they were right, not in the way they meant it, not a, a literal earthly king who would challenge Caesar, but rather a heavenly king who had established an, uh, a spiritual kingdom forever. There is another king, Jesus. And oh yes, one day he is coming back to establish his earthly kingdom too. But I want to think about those who did receive the word. Those in Thessalonica, the some, who did accept what Paul was saying from the Scriptures. And so we don't have that information here in this chapter. But when we turn to the book of the first Thessalonians, we get some background. We see what was going on with them at the time that Paul is sharing these words of God. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
verse 6 to 8. So he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with, with joy and the Holy Spirit. So how they received the word? With much affliction. This shows us that not only was Paul and Silas and Jason and his family and others being persecuted, but even those who were coming to faith were being attacked. They received the word with much affliction. But notice the next part. It was also with joy of the Holy Spirit. When you really, truly receive the word for what it is, no matter what the world is saying, you can have joy of the Holy Spirit in His truth. And so they did. So much so, look at verse 7 and 8, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. And then look at chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, so Back in Acts 17, when they received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men. So you got a picture, Paul, Silas proclaiming the word, but they're hearing it not as Paul's opinion or Silas, not as the word of men. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So that's how they received it. But now, let's go back to um, Acts 17. We want to see another church, another group of people in the city of Berea, about 45 miles south of Thessalonica, a smaller town called Berea. So, um, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded or noble, open-minded, various translations of this idea. They were more fair-minded or open-minded than those in Thessalonica. Well, how was it that they were more noble or open-minded than those in Thessalonica? In that, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So first of all, they were eagerly receiving the word. They received the word with all readiness. This is based on a word that's usually translated zeal. Having a zeal for the Lord, that kind of thing. And it has a, a prefix that kind of amplifies it, uh, strengthens it. That with, with great zeal, with all readiness, with, 
with much eagerness. They were not only willing to listen to it, but we get the sense of this. They were hungry for it. They were truly desiring. They really wanted to hear the word. They wanted to receive it. When they received the word with all readiness, all eagerness, that's how we should receive the word. How does the word impact you as you hear it, as you, as you read it? Are you receiving it with, with zeal, with all readiness, with such gladness? That are you eager for it? If not, then ask the Lord to give you that kind of a hunger for his word, to receive it with all readiness. And then they were examining the word. They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You see, the authority of what was being said here was not in Paul. It was not based on him. It wasn't based on what the Pharisees said. The authority was in the word of God. And so they were not taking Paul's word for it. Even though he was this mighty apostle. They had to search the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And that's what we ought to be like. No matter who you hear a message from. Biblical information, teaching, whatever. Compare it to the word of God. Does it really, is it really reflected in the word of God? Is that what God's word says or not? That is definitely true of me. Anything that I teach or preach to you, you should be weighing against the word of God. If it's not in this word, then don't believe it. Let me know, by the way, if it's not. Because I am accountable to this word, just like all of us are, right? And so it has to be this word. Why? Because it is the final authority. Every other thing you might read, learn, listen to, all has to be put under the subjection of the word of God. It is high and lifted up over everything. It has authority in our life because it is the very word of God. And they recognize that. And so, it's a great lesson for us. So we hear the, the word of God, Isaiah 30, 21 says, you'll hear the word telling you, this is the way, walk ye in it. What is God telling us? We should not only believe the word, but because it is God's word and has authority in our, in our life, we should live the word. We should obey the word. We should say, yes, Lord, to his word. And then finally the effects of the word. Verse 12. Therefore. Because they were so eagerly received the word. Because they searched the scriptures to make sure. This is really what the word says. Therefore. Many of them believed. And also not a few of the Greeks. Prominent women as well as men. Now, notice the difference between verse 4 and verse 12. In, in verse 4, uh, it, with the Thessalonian, Thessalonians, many of them, most of them were not persuaded, were not willing to hear it. And so, only some of them were persuaded. But in Berea, 
there was much more readiness to receive it and to examine the scriptures. And therefore, therefore, verse 12 says, many of them believed. To them, it became the power of God unto salvation. Is the gospel, the power of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into this world to live a sinless life. And he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then he rose from the dead to guarantee victory over sin and death. That anyone who believes in him, acknowledges their sin and says, Lord, I believe you died for me, he gives to them eternal life. They received that message and they were saved. It's the same message for today. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, that same message is true today and every day. Make it yours. Now, even sincere believers can fall into the yes, but trap when it comes to the authority of the Word of God. Um, for instance, the Bible says, uh, do this, and we think, well, yes, but what's going to happen if I do that? Well, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yes, but if you only knew my wife, really meaning if God only knew my wife, hmm, yes, but. The New Testament says, this is the model for church leadership and governance. Yes, but I kind of like the way we used to do it. The Bible says, you are to prefer others before yourself. Remember Philippians 2, 3, and 4 we looked at not too long ago? Let uh, none of us uh, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but rather think highly of others. Put others above ourselves. To think of them and their needs, not our own. To think of them as more important than ourselves. Yes, but I kind of like my way. Now, we fall into this trap, not purposely, not thinking, I'm, I'm, I want to go against the Word of God or believe or do something different, but I think it just kind of slips in there into our, our thinking that, well, yeah, the Word says this, but it's hard. Maybe so. But God, by His Spirit that dwells in you, is able to enable you to say, yes, Lord. So it's a challenge to me, and I hope a challenge to you as well, that when we come to the Word of God, and it has all authority in our life, when God says something, we will not respond with, yes, but, but with simply saying, yes, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word, which like you is perfect and true. It has your authority. 
Lord, let us not lose sight of that. Forgive us, Lord, for taking it too lightly, for not hungering for it the way that we ought to, for not following it as diligently as we need to. Forgive us. But Lord, give us a renewed hunger, thirst for your word, a true desire to to do it, to live it no matter what it says or how inconvenient it might be or go against our thoughts that we would say, yes, Lord, to your word. May it bring glory to you and we know it will be for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.